The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. It's funny that people actually expected me to wear an Ohio State shirt in here today. Like, I'm not crazy. Um, So I know I'm on thin ice this morning with many of you. Um, If you have your Bible, I want you to open it to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read 11 to 22 um, much later today. Um, Don't worry, I know what time it is. Um, You're going to be okay. So yeah, I know, I without without a shadow of a doubt... I recognize my thin ice status this morning, um, but I want to just—I want to share with you um, why I am actually um, an Ohio State fan this morning because it matters in what we're going to talk about today. Um, we lived in Marysville, Ohio, for about five and a half years, and Marysville is just north of Columbus by about thirty minutes. And when we lived there, I, I want you to know that I could not have cared less about Ohio State um, football. I was completely uninterested in it. Um, And it was all anyone ever talked about was Ohio State football, and I truly did not care anything about it. Um, After those five and a half years, we moved to northwest Iowa, uh, to Sioux Center, Iowa. And everyone in Sioux Center, Iowa, was either an Iowa Hawkeye fan or they were a Nebraska Cornhusker fan. And I, and I recognized, like, somehow I had taken in enough information from living in Columbus. Like, I just knew a lot of information about Ohio State football. Um, and one day, Ann and I were at the mall in Sioux Center. We went into the Hallmark store, and there in the bargain bin, so cue laughter, there in the bargain bin at the Hallmark store at the mall in Sioux Center was an Ohio State banner. I think it was $5. So I thought, well, this will be a really fun way for me to have this and hang this out in Sioux Center and let everyone know that I don't care anything about the Hawkeyes or, um, or the Cornhuskers. Um, and just um, like over a period of time, um, because people were constantly talking about college football, like I was required to learn more about college football because that's kind of how they worked. And the more I learned about the team that I was sort of repping at the time, the more interested and the more committed I became to that team. I remember uh, this was in 2007. A friend of mine and I went to, went to Minnesota to see Ohio State play Minnesota. And, um, of course, we had our Ohio State uh, clothing on, and we were sitting in the parking lot just kind of chilling out. And this guy goes walking by us, and he said, O.H., and I looked at him like he was insane because, as I said, like I wasn't really involved in the, in the football culture. And my friend, who was from Ohio, looked at me and said, you're supposed to say I.O., stupid. So I said I.O. And ever since then, I've like gotten more and more and more inculcated into the Ohio State thing. And here's, here's the reality. For those of you that are Nebraska fans— um, you're the exact same way. Nebraska fans are the exact same way. 
You have, you have your own little sayings and slogans. You talk about right now, the saying is frost warning, right? That's the, that's the saying, there's a frost warning. And you have the tunnel walk and black shirts. And you have all of this college football, Nebraska Cornhusker thing. And, and here's the reality in all of that. No matter what college team um, you go to, no matter which college team you support, the reason that that matters is because, like, the college football or the college, um, the university system has tapped into the reality that people want to be in relationship united around something other than themselves. So they've figured that out. They've tapped into something, that, something that's inherent to humanity, that all of us, want to be united in relationship with people, with others, around something that is much, much larger than themselves. And, and wherever, that, wherever that relationality exists, people, people will gather, like regardless of, regardless of temperature, Right? For those of you who've, I've never been to a, a Cornhusker game in November, but I've been to um, see Ohio State play the Golden Gophers in Minneapolis in their new outdoor stadium in November. And let me tell you, it was ridiculously cold at the end of November in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I would guess in, in November in Lincoln, it's probably pretty cold. So, so they, they've done some things to build, to build this culture, to build this desire to be in relationship around something. So wherever there's relationality, people are going to gather. Wherever people can be committed to something. And what we see when, when those kind of things happen is we see people do things that they would normally never do. Like have a college football coach take a bus tour around the state because he's, because he's new. And people will go. Chances are some of you, when Scott Frost came to the Scotts Bluff gearing area, you went to go hear Scott Frost talk. Like that's... There's a lot of commitment. There's a lot of relationality that's built into those kind of things. And that's why that if you would have grown up in another state, the likelihood of you being a Nebraska fan and not a fan of college football from that other state is probably pretty small. Because, because we have this, we want to tap in, we want to connect relationally to other people around things that are bigger than themselves. And what we find in college football is we find unity identification. And it's why one of the members of my small group sent me a text a few weeks ago after Nebraska's win over Illinois. This, notice the language this person used. They said, we're coming for you. So my response was, like, me personally? And she said, no, your team. Isn't it funny that we, that we use that word we as though I'm going, to, as though they're going to call a 48-year-old um, out of the stands to go suit up and throw a football, right? Like we use that word "we" because because there's connect, there's this connectiveness, there's this level of unity, and you'll find this in your bulletin. But the the thing that I want really for you to know today, more than anything else, the thing I want you to realize, know, and accept is that the mission of Jesus Christ relies relies on the unity of the believers within the church. The mission of Jesus Christ relies on the unity of the believers within the church. 
So today what we're going to talk about before we get to Ephesians 2, I, probably, I promise we are going to get there. I almost said we're probably going to get there. We are going to get there. We're going to talk about how, how we see this design for unity and relationality from the very beginning of the Bible. According to a recent LifeWay research study, the average church attendance in the United States is 1.6 times a month. So contrast that with, with the reality that the, the Cornhuskers can send, Nebraska, can send Scott Frost all around Nebraska and people will just show up. Contrast, contrast the relationality and the unity within the church versus the relationality and the unity within any college football program. And that's not me dragging on Nebraska because any new college football team that's going to do that's going to hire a new coach, they're going to do that exact same thing, right? They're going to introduce their coach to their team because they know that their fan base matters. So for us, we have to wrestle with, with this 1.6 times a month. And, and you're not alone in your college football addiction because I know what I do every Saturday from September to November. Like I turn on ESPN in the morning like, if I could plug something into my body and then just lay there all day and watch college football, I would. Because it's pretty much what I do. So this text is going to be on the screen. This is Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let, what's the next word? Let us make human beings in our own image to be like Who? ourselves. So who's, who's the us in this text? Christians commonly understand that as the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what we see when we, when we think about the Trinity is we see this union, we see this community, we see this relationship. And that's why something like the, the Trinity, a theology or a doctrine like the Trinity, is not some abstract thought. It's not something that we have to like try and figure out what it, what it means. It, it's not something that doesn't impact who we are as Christians. The Trinity is a demonstration of perfect unity for our own relationships as humans. So when we look, when we look to God as the Trinity, when we look to God as, as the three-in-one, we see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What we're seeing is a demonstration of what our own relationships are ought to look like. And out of the overflow of that, of that perfect relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, we, we have us. We have all of creation. That's, that's why they created everything, was because it flowed out of who they were. What came out of that perfect unity was love. Let's look ahead to Genesis uh, 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper who is just right for him. This is kind of interesting because, because what God is saying to, to himself, what God is saying to one another, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper who is just right for them. That is the complete opposite of what many us, of us pursue in 2019. In our time, individualism is the proclaimed ideal. What we seek to do in our day is, is to be alone, is to be by ourselves. 
And, and understand something. In this, in this text in Genesis 2.18, sin hasn't entered the world yet. There is, there is no wickedness. And yet God, God peers into the life of Adam and what he sees is individuality does not accurately reflect the relationality of God. Does that make sense? There's something missing. When we are, even, when we are individuals, even in our sinless selves, there is, there's, something that's, there's something that's missing. We can't accurately image the who of God by ourselves. We can't accurately image the vertical relationship without someone to image it to. So, so here's what God does. Is he, he creates Eve. Several chapters later in Genesis 12, we find the same God of relationality is expressed. And, he, and here's what happens between Genesis 2 and Genesis chapter 12. Mankind falls and basically humanity goes on a rampage and fills the earth with sin. So God floods the entire earth and kills everyone but Noah and his family. Kills them all, wipes them out. So I want you to think about that. The next time you're tucking your kids in at bed at night and you're telling them the story of Noah's ark and you're talking about the giraffe sticking their heads out the windows, like, good night, baby. Like, the entire world has been destroyed. God has just destroyed all of humanity. So there's this, there's this reboot. There's this opportunity to start over again. And the first thing, as the people begin to build again, as the people begin to mass, the first thing they do is they build a tower to the heavens. So, so they're united around a purpose, but the purpose is their own glory. The purpose is to bring attention to themselves. So what God does is he confuses them and he gives them multiple languages and then he disperses them. Which is kind of curious that the, that the God who desires for people to be in relationship with one another when they do it, they, they, he disperses them? Like, why does that make sense? Well, because they weren't united in relationship with him. So when we are united in relationship with other people, but it's not around that vertical relationship, that's not necessarily something that pleases God. And this is, this is God's response in Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3. God comes to Abraham and he says this, The Lord said to Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, who treat you with contempt. All the families of the earth will be blessed by you. So this is, this is God's plan from the beginning of Genesis, is he creates relationality and we all reject it. So God floods the earth. And then when they gather together, they're not gathered and united around God. They're gathered and united around themselves. So now God comes to Abraham. And don't miss what he's doing. He's calling Abraham to leave the relationships that he has, his nation, and his family to exchange them, to exchange those relationships for the relationships of a much greater purpose, to make a nation 
and to bless others. God's coming in relationship, in relationality, to restore people and to gather people, and it happens through Abraham. Let's skip ahead to the book of Exodus. Those sons of Abraham, they go on to be a great nation, but where are they a great nation? They're a great nation enslaved in Egypt. So God comes to Moses, and he tells him that his people are going to be a treasure. My people are going to be a treasure. And I remember, if you remember from last week's text in Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul wrote that we would be God's masterpiece. See, this is the same concept. And, and the reason we're going through Scripture this way right now is I want you to see that this this call to relationship, this call to relationality that's centered around God as the one that we worship, as the one that we praise, it's not isolated to Ephesians chapter 2. It's not isolated to only the New Testament. It's not isolated only to a specific time. But God's call for us to be in relationship with one another is, is an all-time thing. This is the way that God operates. And what God desires is he wants a people. He doesn't want a person. God wants a nation. He doesn't want individuals. And these these things from the Old Testament, from Genesis Genesis and Exodus, they're the lens that the writers of the New Testament were using. That's how they would have understood the entire world. So, again, when Paul writes about relationship and relationality, it's not isolated. It's based on everything that Paul had ever known as he was growing up. And it's exactly what Jesus was after when he told his disciples that they were to go out and make disciples of all nations. There was nothing that was individualistic about it. Nothing. God's always relied upon the unity of believers to move the message forward. The proclamation of the gospel always comes through a unified body. And this is exactly what Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost was about in Acts chapter 2. And yeah, we just skipped the entire Old Testament. Peter's entire message in Acts chapter 2 was filled with quotes from the Old Testament. And not just, not just about, what, about who the Messiah was, but laden in those, in those quotes from the Old Testament was what the Messiah was going to do. And honestly, that's why the first manifestation, the first things that were obvious that the people had been changed, that the disciples had been changed at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, what was the sign? It was the multiple languages. Do you remember that? The spirit descends, tongues of fire over their head. What a day that must have been. And they immediately start speaking the languages of the nations gathered because God was building a people. He wasn't building a person. And while as individuals, every single one of us, we, we respond individually and individualistically to God if we read through the New Testament, we'll never see a context of the faith. We'll never see a context of Christians outside of the community of believers. There's no such thing in the New Testament 
of as all I need is Jesus. And I don't need any of you people. It's not the New Testament story. And here's, here's what's true about this, this press against individuality from Scripture. As, as much in the, in the West, as, as our culture is built around the, the rugged individual, that ethos of I have to be a self-made man or a self-made woman, as much as we all live in that space, and as much as like, we kind of think about it, right? because we don't want anyone to tell us what to do, What's funny is there's a quote, and I bet you know what goes in the blank. There is no blank in team. There is no what in team. See, we, we know that's true. As much as, as, much as many of us, and I, I confess to, to, the, to the pull of the rugged individual, as much as I confess my desire to be individualistic and not be in relationship and not be in community, as much as I press against that, I know there's no I in team. And let's go back to Nebraska football for a second. I kind of understand the culture that Scott Frost is trying to build at Nebraska. And my guess is if someone, if someone rolls into practice at the beginning of the season and it's all about them, I give them about 10 days on the team wouldn't you? Because it's not, it's not individuals who win games. It's teams that win games. And so for us, one of the things that we have to kind of wrestle with is, as we think about what it means to be in relationship with one another is if, if a college football team would not allow that level of individuality, Let's not talk about college football. Think about, think about where you work. If the place you work wouldn't allow that level of individuality. In your family, you probably would not allow that level of individuality. Like if one of your kids just sits it out, like, oh, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to do any chores for a week. Moms, dads, how's that going to work for you? Probably not very well. So why do we, as the church body, why would, we, why would we accept that? Why would we be satisfied as it relates to our relationship within the church? And here's the thing. By church, some of you, because we are culturally motivated, we are culturally taught to think of church as, as a place we go, right? Maybe some of you said that this morning. We have to go to church. See, the church isn't a place that we go. So, so when you hear myself or one of our other pastors talk about, talk about being more involved and more engaged, here's, here's what we're not saying. We're not saying you need to come to the 1015 more often. Because that, that 1.6 times a month, like, cult, like as, a, as an organization, like that just doesn't work in so many other places outside of this. And it doesn't work here. Here's the thing that we're calling you to. We're calling you to gather with your body more consistently. Because, see, that's, that's what this is about. This isn't about just coming to the 1015. When we talk about participation, that's, that's what we mean, is, by, is to gather. Not to do a certain thing at a certain time, or to not only to do a certain thing at a certain time, 
But this, this call to community, this call to relationship, it's, it's not a membership drive. It's not how many people can we get into this space. It's, it's how many people can we get in, into relationship with one another. Last week, I heard someone talking about the difference between a strong group culture and a weak group culture. A strong group culture is one in which the group or community has greater value than the individual. Okay, so that's a, that's a strong group culture. The group or the community has greater value. And a weak group culture is one in which the, individuality, the individual has greater value than the community. Guess which one we are typically in the West? We are the, uh, the weak group culture in which the individual has value over the needs of the community. And the question is, like, as much as we are, maybe, maybe you're bothered, maybe, maybe this is confronting you a little bit. What we have to do is we have to look at the culture that Jesus is trying to promote. We have to look at the culture that Jesus did promote. We have to look at the culture that Jesus is calling us to. And we have a picture of that. There's a scene in which Jesus is doing ministry and his, and his mom and his family members show up. Maybe you remember this. If you've grown up in church, you remember this scene. His mom and his family members show up. And one of the disciples goes out and they're like, hey, go, go tell Jesus we're here. We want to talk to him. He has to come home with us. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? I tell you, the people that are, that are in this room, the, the people that do what the Father says, they are my mother and my brothers. I don't know how well that would go over in your family, but let me tell you about Sheila for a second. If Sheila showed up at the office one day and went to Megan and said, hey, I want to talk to John, and Megan came back to my office and said, John, your mom's here. And I said, my mom? Shane and Mike and Joe and Jim and you, Megan, you are my brothers and sisters. I would tell Megan she probably ought to put a helmet on before she walks back into the office to where Sheila is. And here's the thing that I want you to see. Jesus is, Jesus is elevating disciples to family. That's what's, that's what's taking place in this text. He's saying, for those who, are, who do the will of the Father, for those I'm in relational community with, centered around Jesus, that's who my real family is. So, so my relationship with my, with my brothers and sisters in Christ, here's a more confrontation. My relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ is going to trump every other relationship that I have. Every other one. Mom and dad, even my children, let's talk confrontation, even my children. But see, that's why we started in Genesis chapter 1. Because, because this level of commitment to, to one another relationally because of what God has done, it's been, the, it's been the way it is from the start. Remember Abraham's call. Leave your nation and leave your family. But, and I'm going to give you a new one. 
Let's go back to Acts chapter 2 for a sec. Peter gives a sermon about Jesus and his mission to give life to all those who are dead. He says that this, this unity is going to come around Jesus. This unity is going to come around the Messiah. This plan that God has all had to do with Jesus as the Messiah. And then he says, and, and that Messiah, you guys killed him. You killed the one that was, that was bringing life and was bringing wholeness and was bringing purpose and was giving to relationship. And when they heard that, reality set in and they asked the question, right? Brothers, what must we do? They were, the NIV, I think, says they were cut to the heart. So, so when Peter, ran, at the end of Peter's sermon, he says, and you guys killed him, like they were, they were provoked. They were filled with guilt, and they were filled with shame. What, was, what must we do? And Peter just responded. He said, repent, be baptized, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And then, It says just below that, those who believe what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. What do you think happened next? Did all those people just go home? Return to all of the different places where they went? What happened after they made that connection, that relational commitment to God? This is what Acts says. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the sharing of meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. See, here's what happened. They entered into that vertical relationship with God, and their immediate next step was to gather horizontally with one another. It's how they they lived their life. There were no rugged individualists in Jerusalem at this point. Because if there were any rugged individualists, I'm not in a position to say someone is or isn't a follower of Christ. But they sure weren't demonstrating any of the fruit of it, were they? By the way they were living their lives, was there any indication in terms of the way that they related to one another? I would argue that there wasn't. These people had their own language and they had their own rituals, and that kind of sounds like us with college football, right? We have our own chants, we have our own things that we say, we have our own things that we do, places we gather, and they were completely dedicated to two things. They were dedicated to worshiping God, and they were dedicated to living life in relationship with one another. Because being in right relationship with God doesn't stop with God. And see, this is the fallacy when we think, all I need is Jesus, I love you, I think I know what you're trying to say, and you're not right. 
You're wrong. You need other people. You need other believers. We see that when Genesis chapter 2, in the perfect world, when God peers down at Adam and says, paraphrase, there's something that Adam is not able to communicate, is not able to properly image about us, Jesus, Holy Spirit, without other people. So when we live in ways where we are isolated from other believers, we're not accurately imaging who God is. How can we? There's no one to image God to. Which is why there's three involved in the Trinity. Because two people being relationally solid with one another, yeah, that can happen, right? They can be, they can be so perfectly aligned and so perfectly engaged. Add a third into the mix. For those of you who are married and you don't have a kid yet, like I know you feel like you're perfectly aligned with your spouse, and when that first kid shows up, it is going to be game on. My wife was in Ohio last week seeing, um, seeing our daughter, and they had, their, they had their fourth grandchild a few weeks, third grandchild a few weeks ago. Well, they had their third child. It was our fourth. And Katie's taking care of the baby. And she said as soon as she started taking care of the baby, Grayson, who's four, and Owen, who's two and a half, looked at each other like they knew what was, gonna, what was up. Because mom was going to be holding the baby or changing the baby. So they just went on a tirade throughout the house and destroyed the place. See, so three. This is why the Trinity matters. Two people can get along great, add a third to the mix. And yet somehow, somehow, there's nothing somehow about it. Somehow the Trinity is able to maintain perfect unity. These people were saved and they were added to the church and they immediately began to live out their new relationship with God. And how did they do it? Through their relationship with other people. And of course, they still went to temple. We see that. Of course, they still did all of these rituals. But none of those rituals were at the expense of the relationship that they had with one another. Let's read today's text. This is Ephesians 2, 11 to 18. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it only affected their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between the Jews and Gentiles into, by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death and on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. 
He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done. Here's here's what Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 2. Our sin did not just separate us from God. That was everything we talked about last week. Remember, Paul started off chapter 2 with, you were dead. Our sin separated us from God, but it also separated us from one another. And the Jews looked at the Gentiles as heathens. And the reality was, without, without even an identity of God's people, these Gentiles, they had nothing. If we were to go to the temple, we would have seen a wall at the temple that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. And see, what was supposed to be a thing that was, that was supposed to separate the holy from unholy, that was supposed to just keep them apart, what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 2, in fact, that was a wall of hostility. It was a means not just of keeping the holy people from the unholy people, but it was a means to keep people away from God, to separate them from God. There's an inscription that has been discovered on this wall, and it says this. No foreigner, that's Gentile, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing this will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Imagine if we had a wall like that in our lobby. Christians are allowed in here. Not in Christians. You have to stay out here. See, some of us might be tempted to think that if, that if we can stay apart from the world, we'll be better Christians. Now, here's the reality. It says be in the world, but not of the world, right? So, th- so there has to be interaction. There has to be community. But if you are a non-Christian, as, as good as maybe our intentions might be to build a wall like that, if you were a non-Christian, would you feel welcome or not welcome? And the whole time, God is love. Come on in, but you can only come to that wall. See, that would be a wall of hostility. And Jesus breaks that wall down. Jesus has destroyed that wall of hostility. And in the same way, when we, when we refuse to be in relationship with people, it's not, it's not just one another, but when, we, but when we refuse to be in relationship with non-believers, we're facilitating their separation from God. And I really want you, to, I will, I want you to grasp what I'm saying. When we know there are non-believers out there who don't know Jesus is, and we choose to have nothing to do with them, we choose to not spend time with them, we choose to not love them, we choose to not share the gospel with them, we are facilitating their separation from God. What we're saying is, God's too good for you, and I'm too good for you. And because of that, I'm not going to hang out with you. And why would anyone enter into a relationship with Christ if we were doing that to them? Scott Sauls writes this. I may have said this before. What matters more to us? That we successfully put people in their place or that we are known to love well? That we win elections or that we win hearts with humility, truth, and love? 
God have mercy on us if we do not love well because all that matters to us is winning. How would the early church have dealt with a quote like that? They would have loved. They would have loved people well. Here's how all of this works, what God does. Much like last week's, you were dead, but God has done this. In verse 13, he says this, but now you have been united with Christ. Once you were far away from God, but now you brought near to him through the blood of Christ. So the cross of Christ unites all of us as believers. The wall of hostility comes down. The barrier is gone. And the cross takes people of different groups, different nationalities, different languages, and he's making a people out of them, not a person. And here's a spiritual reality for us. As Christians, we have more in common, as Christians, we have more in common with a Christian who lives in Iraq, who doesn't speak English, who knows nothing of the West. We have more in common with a Christian from Iraq than we do with the guy down the street from us who's a Husker fan. Even if they are your best friend, you have more in common if we are a Christian. With the other Christians in this room, we have more in common with any of those people than any other way that might connect us. So those are the relationships that we need to be in pursuit of. The people with which we have commonality. And 1.6 times a month ain't going to get it for you. The mission of Jesus Christ depends on the unity of believers in the church. And the only way for us to find unity is to be together. And here's how Paul ends this section. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made a part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. I want you to notice that every pronoun in those verses is plural. When he says you, this wasn't written to an individual. It was written to, written to a body. It was written to a group. So the you is plural. You are not strangers or foreigners. You are citizens just like everyone else. You are members of God's family. You, plural, you, we are his house, not this building. The foundation is the people who've come before us, and the only individuals mentioned here are Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit. And even they are in community with one another. Only when we all come together do we have the temple that God is building. And only when we are together, only through him as this body of believers, are we made into the body that he puts together. And when we get God, we get one another. I want to be really practical today. Here's what I want you to do. Sometime in the next two weeks, I want you to go out and have a meal with somebody in this in this body. 
Let's go out and have a meal with them. It's not terrible homework. Right? You have to be with people you like, talk about Jesus, and eat a meal together. What an oppressive hellhole John is trying to create here at Westway Christian Church. (laughs) Be in relationship with one another. Find someone that you haven't had a meal with and just go eat a meal with them and build relationships with one another. So we can't all go to Arby's today because that would be crazy. But Ann and I, after the 10.15 today, after the 11.45 today, are going to go to Arby's. And we just want to have a meal with whoever wants to show up. So we invite you to do that, and I'm just giving you two weeks. That's your assignment. Just have a meal with somebody. Talk about Jesus. Have some conversations about what God is saying to you through this series. Talk about the things that God is doing in your life and pray over one another and pray for one another. Just be in relationship together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather here this morning as your body to be in relationship with one another for all of the different ways you give us and you provide for us to be in community together. Help us to not get caught up in in some sort of legalism as though we have to come here. Help us to be driven by love. Help us to remember that, that necessarily after our entry into relationship with you, we are in relationship with other believers. God, this is the vision you're casting for your people, and we are your people. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.